Women have always been a force for peace, but their contributions have mostly remained unrecognized and unsupported. The UN Security Council Resolution 1325 on Women, Peace and Security set out to change that. Nearly 20 years after its adoption, where are we now? What is the future of Women, Peace and Security? Hello and welcome to another episode of GNWP Talks 1325. My name is Eliza Beckerman Lee and I'm a peacebuilding communications intern for the Global Network of Women Peacebuilders. Today is a very special day for us here at the Global Network of Women Peacebuilders. I'd like to wish you all a very happy International Day of Peace. The General Assembly has declared this a day devoted to strengthening the ideals of peace within and among all nations and peoples. The 17 Sustainable Development Goals adopted by UN member states cover a broad range of economic and social issues that must be solved in order to achieve a peaceful world. The theme of this year's Day of Peace is Climate Action for Peace. To celebrate, we are lucky enough to be joined by the incredible Dr. Betty Reardon. Dr. Reardon was part of the team that spearheaded the initial research on peace education around the world, and she's renowned in the field. In addition to sitting on GNWP's International Advisory Council, she has advocated peace learning as an essential component of effective community and civil action. Dr. Reardon is currently developing a gender framework for general and complete disarmament, the foundation of stable peace and institutional changes required to achieve and maintain it. She is the recipient of a number of peace awards and has been nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. Welcome, Dr. Reardon. We can't wait to learn more about your work forging peace with the empowerment of young women and girls in your community and beyond. To start us off, Dr. Reardon, I was hoping you could tell us a bit about how you, along with the small international team you work with, began in the field of peace education, something that was not well studied before your time. Could you explain the context in which you began your work and what originally inspired you to begin working in peace education? Well, what inspired me to uh, work in peace education goes way back in my uh, my own life because uh, as a child in the Second World War, I believed that war was a folly. And um, I've always held that, that it was um, a kind of human madness, something that did not have to be. and. There has been, through millennia, efforts to build peace by helping people to think a little differently mm-hmm. uh, or to believe something different. Uh, the field, as I have participated in it, derived after the Second World War and came out of something that was, at that point, going from international understanding. Mm-hmm. There was an assumption that war was in part the consequence of misunderstandings among mm-hmm. nations. And then into something called world citizenship and world studies. And uh, I came into the field from the classes, into the field full time to mm-hmm. develop programs and curriculum from uh, social studies classrooms. Mm-hmm. So my view of the field was that this is an area of social education. And it was conditioned by my going from the classroom to work at an institute Mm -hmm. that was a research institute looking into mechanisms for war prevention. Mm -hmm. 
So at the beginning, what we were developing, which was different from what had gone before mm -hmm. us, was trying to outline for learners uh, what the world problematic was, what the, the, the war problematic was in particular, and what were the uh, what we ultimately came to see as uh, the core problem, violence. What, what were the sources of violence that were discernible? Mm -hmm. And then to work with developing learning experiences which would enable students and other learners because we, we work with people outside schools and universities as well as in schools and universities. What could en enable just average citizens to discern these obstacles and to see them as common social political problems mm -hmm. and then to begin to develop ideas for alternatives and out of that uh, engage in political action around achieving the uh, alternatives. And so that was what was different about mm -hmm. peace education as, as we developed it. And when I say we, I'm talking about an uh, international group of educators who got to know each other primarily through the International Peace Research Association, which set up a small group called the Peace Education Commission as a regular part of the association. And we would meet at uh, IPRA, I-P-R-A, International mm -hmm. Peace Research Association, at IPRA meetings. And then for a number of years, we had what we call summer schools. Uh -huh. And so we would, became, in those summers, a real working community. Mm -hmm. And um, those of us who are still living are still connected to each mm -hmm. other, both personally and professionally. Mm -hmm. And where, you said this international team, where were the other people coming from? Well, they were from Latin America, they were from Africa, mm -hmm. Eastern Europe, Western Europe, mm -hmm. Northern Europe. Uh, we had a, a man who was very already very famous, who had been working in the slums of Naples for years. Mm -hmm. uh, we had a very young man who was uh, a high-ranking officer in SWAPO, oh. who later became the Prime Minister of oh. Namibia. Uh, we had a young man from Romania, who later became the Foreign Minister of Romania. So these people were doing great things. And a woman from India who had been doing a lot of uh, political action, women's empowerment. Uh, a man from Latin America who worked uh, with marginalized people, mm -hmm. school teachers from from uh, Netherlands who later became the head of a <laughs> research institute. Everybody left the classroom. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but uh, yeah, there it was really, uh, really, really good group. Um, that pretty much covers, oh, Japan, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was very interesting because their friendships were formed uh -huh. that were contrary to power alignments in the world and attitudes. And um, our Dutch friend had, from the time he was 18 months old until he was four months old, he was in a Japanese prison camp. Wow. And he became very close, personal, and 
friends and professional colleagues mm -hmm. uh, with one of our Japanese colleagues in particular who was very much into our group. Mm -hmm. But we all had something very much in common, and mm -hmm. that was we had a value system that was the mm -hmm. same. So no matter what the, how your larger country was interacting, and you guys were all in it for the creation of peace together, so you could create those bonds, contrary to all the wars that were happening and the horrible things outside. Yeah, it was, it was a result, uh, really, of personal interaction mm -hmm. and a deep commitment uh, to the idea that the world didn't have to be the way it was, mm -hmm. and that together we could envision uh, and help others to envision alternatives, uh, and to see that, by and large, uh, the bottom line in terms of what was m most beneficial to humankind was some sort of collaborative order and an order which would be very diverse because we just love the fact that we were all different and we learned each other's songs and we cooked for each other and uh, but we all were still very much rooted in our own yeah. our own cultures and perspectives and we were able also to say to each other now oh, well, you know you only think that because you're an american you uh -huh. only think that because you're or you you think that primarily because you're from yeah. colombia or yeah. whatever and it, it helped us mm -hmm. also to see our own national blinders, yeah. which is something we try to... Now, how can we get that into the education yeah. of other people? So they see that because that's certainly something that we in this country suffer from mm -hmm. traditionally, and now it's terrible. Yeah. Now it's, it's, it's epidemic and it's virulent. Mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. yeah, despite the more globalized the world gets, we still have our bubbles. Still not well, for some people, the p problem is globalization. Sometimes they shy away from it because they, or try to push back against it. Because well, because I think if they, why they push back is <laughs> because they feel their identities and security mm -hmm. are being threatened. Yeah. Because they have not uh, had an intent intentional learning experience mm -hmm. which enables them to see diversity mm -hmm. as a benefit mm -hmm. and that they don't have to lose anything they can still be exactly the people they are mm -hmm. they are just open to richer possibilities yeah. and what is happening with this society is we're closing down more and more mm -hmm. and as we close down more and more we become uh, more and more aggressive and violent toward others yeah. so so not not heading in the most positive direction. That's not where we are now. Hopefully, yeah. soon we'll have people turning it around. And so, thank you for that first question. Our next question, as you know, this year's International Peace Day theme is Climate Action for Peace, and we're drawing attention to the importance of combating climate change as a way to protect and promote peace throughout the world. Natural disasters displace three times as many people as conflicts do and force millions to leave their homes and seek safety elsewhere. Growing tensions over resources and mass movements of people are affecting every country on every continent. In your opinion, what do you think climate action for peace entails? How do peace and climate change go hand in hand? Well, peace and climate change don't go it's not just hand in hand. Mm -hmm. When you um, 
say something goes hand in hand, and you are conceptualizing two individuals joining. Mm -hmm. um, climate change and peace are different aspects of the same common problem. And um, my concept of what that problem is, is has been for decades uh, that it's a deep-rooted psychological and political, social, cultural structures of patriarchy. But I w uh -huh. I'm, not, I'm not going to uh -huh. necessarily you know, talk about that as such, but there is this central structure, mm -hmm. which is very varied, takes many forms in different cultures and mm -hmm. in different historic periods. But essentially, what it is, and the effect that it has on these problems that we're talking about is, mm -hmm. it tends, among other things, to want the controlling factors mm -hmm. of this hierarchical order mm -hmm. want to dominate everything okay. and arrange things to continue this, the power order as it is. The, the main objective is to keep the power order going. But what is terribly problematic in the immediate situation and why I started uh, by saying, you know, the hand in hand read different, mm -hmm. is that it has influenced our thinking so that we separate things mm -hmm. and we reduce them to parts. Mm -hmm. And um, there has been for a number of years this concept of intersectionality. Mm -hmm. Well, intersectionality is a step beyond the separation, but it still doesn't recognize that these different problems are functioning together. They interact, not just uh -huh. intersect. They interact, and they interact in such a way as to maintain the status quo. Uh, not the status quo and all its, uh, mm -hmm. all its details, because we've had a lot of change, we've had a lot of progress, but we haven't yet come to the point where we understand that the climate crisis is the quintessential crisis of multiple problems. Mm -hmm. You know, they try to, to, to deal with that with <laughs> the sustainable development goals, and they yeah. end up with 17 points, and they never interrelate them <laughs> into a common mm -hmm. system, you know? Yeah. So All the same uh, problem. Yeah, and so that's part of it. I mean, that they're trying really hard, but the breakthrough hasn't come. And why this is this is not only a crisis on the edge of catastrophe, mm -hmm. but it is an unprecedented opportunity mm -hmm. to begin to change our thinking. So the the major change is to move away from trying to control, trying to direct things toward a goal that does not relate to the whole, a whole mm -hmm. bunch of goals, you know, mm -hmm. and to begin to think in terms of the whole. Okay. So that um, if we would begin to think not so much 
of the international order and the member states. I mean, we have to, well, in certain aspects <coughs> of policy planning require that. Mm -hmm. But the framework in which we, or the sphere in which we should be thinking, mm -hmm. is the earth itself. Mm -hmm. The earth is at stake. Mm -hmm. And we are not passengers on spaceship earth. We are part of the whole biosystem. Mm -hmm. All the systems of Earth are interlinked. Any, any loss within that system is a total system loss. Mm -hmm. And that has not been recognized. That uh, the present administration, not only the US administration, not only de denies climate change, um, they think that species extinction is just a detail. Yeah, and the whole, like I saw today, moving forward to override these past water protections. Right. Like, you're only hurting yourself with all of that. You, you, you don't, you have to think ahead. It's not like, yeah, like you said, spaceship Earth, this all affects us. Everything we do, it affects current day, our future. And so how can you have create peace, you empower others if everyone's dying and we're not protecting the planet we're living on. Also, it is because the Earth is seen as the big basket of resources. Mm -hmm. And the reason for removing some of those regulations is that they prevented the ultimate exploitation of resources. Mm -hmm. And the mentality is to exploit toward as much profit as possible mm -hmm. in as short a time as possible. Mm -hmm. And that's the recipe for uh, disaster. Oh my gosh. So when we say climate change and peace, we're think we need to think in terms of the whole biosphere. Mm -hmm. And we need to think of in terms that I call ecological, that, that is in terms of living systems, what, what can we do that maintain living, will maintain living systems? What are we doing that is eroding living systems, including mm -hmm. ourselves, because yeah. our health mm -hmm. is uh, affected by uh, the environmental disasters. Directly. Now, as a peace educator, I have seen these problems as unnecessary harm. Mm -hmm. Unnecessary harm is violence. And violence is any harm done for the purpose of the perpetrator. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in war you kill the enemy because your purpose is victory and you assume that you will I'll be victorious if you kill more of the enemy than the enemy kills of you. But any, that's just one form of violence. Mm -hmm. It is the biggest form, the most um, organized form, mm -hmm. and we have organized a lot of our society mm -hmm. about being better at that mm -hmm. than all the other guys. Yeah. So, and in the process, not only the kinds of uh, conditions that you are elaborating, we also do greater violence to the earth mm -hmm. 
the war system uses more resources, more fossil fuels than any other sector. Mm -hmm. So you can see then that there is this interlinking of peace with climate through the concept of moving from exploitation control to collaboration and maintaining vitality and health. So you, you, that's kind of the, a brief summary of, of mm -hmm. how the thinking might, might shift. Mm -hmm. And why I think this is a, also, there are many other, you know, we could talk about atmosphere of testing and what that does and uh, how war games lay land uh, desolate and so forth without it even having a war. Yeah. Uh, all of this can be done. But it, the two, how is it that these uh, two issues are seen by many people as integral and it turns out that the vast majority of people who see them as integral one to the other mm -hmm. have been women. Wow. So I'm just reading Ungari Matai's mm -hmm. Nobel Laureate uh, lecture, which I think everybody should read. Mm -hmm. Well, Wangari Matai, you know, she was the Kenyan mm -hmm. woman who started the uh, tree planting program in, in Kenya and she was politically active and she was put in jail and so forth mm -hmm. for insisting the rights of the earth and Wangari also thought in ecological terms. Mm -hmm. Her background as a rural child in Africa steeped mm -hmm. her in human mm -hmm. relationship to the earth. Mm -hmm. So that was the framework in which she thought and that was the core also of her ethics mm -hmm. kind of she had there's an institute over uh -huh. here now called earth ethics huh. but Wangari Mathai uh, lived by earth ethics before any of them yeah. th thought of that that huh. notion but it I could say like uh, Wangari Mathai um, Helen Caldecott uh, Rachel Carson mm -hmm. uh, Barbara McClintock so many women who understood two things. One, that the earth is a living system and that we're part of it. And that everything that we do in relationship to changing the environment <coughs> has consequences and too much of what we have been doing has been having negative consequences. Mm -hmm. So you might move from that to, well, what difference does it make? Mm -hmm. uh, what difference it makes is what led us to mm -hmm. work for 1325. Yeah. Because it became very evident that the kind of thinking that women were doing was the kind of thinking that was needed in public policy. Mm -hmm. And the only way we could do that was to begin, do that with regard to, in particular, war and violence, was to 
keep pushing to have w women fully involved mm -hmm. in quote, close quotes, all matters uh -huh. of peace and security. Mm -hmm. So those three things, the, um, the what I call the gender imperative, the earth imperative, mm -hmm. and the third one, I, which I'm elaborating now, is the weapons imperative. Mm -hmm. And that is, well, there was an archaeologist, Greek archaeologist, many, many decades ago named Gumbitas, who reinterpreted what had been the common reading mm -hmm. of many archaeological artifacts oh. and, and the culture. Uh -huh. And the common reading had been that many objects were weapons. And therefore, weaponry was seen as important to the culture, mm -hmm. and conflict had a significant part in it. And this person looked and looked and looked and said, well, no, it's not a weapon. This is a tool. This is an agricultural tool. Wow. This is a tool, tool for food processing. And it's that kind of it's change of perception. So we don't think of weapons as tools, but they are tools, but mm -hmm. they're not tools for maintaining and enriching life mm -hmm. in the way that Gambitas identified those tools. They're, they're tools for destroying and undermining life. So they're, they're tools working towards a different goal. They, yeah. But they're tools in the service of this larger uh -huh. power paradigm that cannot accept the integrity mm -hmm. and claims, life claims of the planet itself. Uh -huh. You know, they just don't understand that. So naturally, just the same as they will do away with certain regulations to protect resources, they will perfect tools to enable them to manipulate more, uh -huh. to force, because tool, weapons, you know, war, is, as I said before, is that you kill more of the other side before mm -hmm. they, you know, so Sorry. one of you wins, that sort of thing, or you destroy more of their, their infrastructure and uh, economy and so forth. But with the notion of weapon, a weapon is something that is intended to wound kill or intimidate. Mm. So we have been building huge mm -hmm. stores of weapons, perfecting more and more destructive weapons so we can intimidate because we believe if we can scare who, whoever we perceive as the enemy of the day enough, mm -hmm. they will not challenge us. So, you know, that's, that's part of it. If we could begin to just think a little differently, I'm not saying we have to do it like day to day. And mm -hmm. everything that we have uh, perfected that's positive within the, in, you know, the UN, in, in particularly within the civil society UN collaboration, mm -hmm. is something that we can adapt to change the kinds of changes mm -hmm. that we could begin if we see this mm -hmm. initial, the climate, peace, gender. Finally coming together. Yeah, and see, yeah. see that as this is 
a holistic approach to multiple diverse complex problems and it doesn't mean that you can do away with analyzing problems you, you have to look at the details you have to go down. When I was teaching, I used to do uh, what I called problem exploration through a zoom lens. Mm -hmm. And you could either start with the little ant crawling around the bottom of a tree, mm -hmm. or you could start with a whole forest. But until you go from the forest down, down, down to the mm -hmm. ant, or from the ant up oh, to yeah. the forest, you don't really see the problem. Mm -hmm. And until you do both, you're not going to get the best yeah. solution. Uh -huh. wow. The next question, which they're all related because like you said, they're yeah. all working yeah. towards the same goal and part of the same problems, but You've always been an avid supporter of GNWP's work in women, peace, and security. You've also always advocated for women's ideas and issues to be considered a central part of all debates on world peace. Why do you think that women are among the most important drivers of peace, and what makes their presence and their perspective distinctly valuable in the process of peacemaking and peacekeeping? And you were just mentioning before how in this collaboration of climate change and peace ideas, um, how to solve them, he found that women were bringing up ideas that were not otherwise mentioned. It was always often the women who had this kind of ethics or earth ethics or had these ideas ingrained in them. Well, uh, I think there are two, two points to be made here. Uh, one is <coughs> that women as a group within uh, the traditional social order have a different experience from uh, men, no matter what society or culture. And um, <clears throat> from the earliest you know, settled civ civilizations on, women have uh, primarily, uh, they've done what I would call earth, earth life work, mm -hmm. but women took care of the day-to-day -day practical things of keeping their families alive, mm -hmm. keeping the communities relatively at peace, the families, the community, whatever, the, the clan, uh, through social interactions. And the men would intervene when things got really bad, you know, mm -hmm. but uh, that is when they reached, when things re reached the point of potential serious harm and then Women, women are socialized to take care. Mm -hmm. So that means women are so, this doesn't mean all women do it, and there are lots of uncaring women, mm -hmm. but they are taught to care in the sense of taking care mm -hmm. and caring about. Mm -hmm. And that's a very natural thing. We tend to care about what we have to take care of. Yeah. And vice instinct. versa. Yeah. And you're a little child and you get a dog, you love the dog, and you mm -hmm. wouldn't take care, you know, you wouldn't go out and walk anything else, or you wouldn't do the kinds of things you would do for your dog mm -hmm. because you care for him mm -hmm. and or her. 
And uh, so that caring leads to actual caring and learning the skills of mm -hmm. caring. So women have had to look at the world in terms of how can I deal with whatever hand is dealt me mm -hmm. in such a way as I can do the best for those who depend on me, for those I care about, mm -hmm. those I care for. The other thing is, there's no specialization. You know, you don't have, uh, maybe if you had a large polygamous family, you could have mm -hmm. one mother who would be in charge of uh, bruised knees, and another mother who would be in charge of cooking, and another mother who would be in <laughs> charge of separating the kids who were yeah. having the fight and another mother in charge of making the budget work, and uh -huh. another mother in charge of keeping the house clean. And just or when seeing you say it like that, you can see the infinite tasks a mother has to handle, take care of. Yeah. And this was everything. Yeah, all is at the same time, always going on. And that's affected women's thinking. Mm -hmm. So women think more holistically. Uh-huh. Because, and you see it, it goes back to that the way you're raised and the way you're taught to think. Right. Wow. It's interesting. It's one of those things that you always have always kind of noticed or just understood, but you don't really understand why. It's like, oh yeah, it's it's part of my brain. That's how we think. That's we consider the whole. We consider how it's going to affect everyone involved and what's the best way to maximize happiness and maximize benefits. But it's because you're taught to take care of things, to be the protector, to handle a million things at once, and also be planning for the future and fixing what's happening in the present. Yeah, mm. but not all women and not all men <clears throat> are brought up that way or mm -hmm. think that way. And you know, the other the other thing is, and you see this all the time in <clears throat> kindergartens. There are kids who are brought up and, you know, say, that's your toy and you take care of it and you don't let anybody else play with it because mm -hmm. you're responsible and blah, blah, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, that uh, It's mine. Mm -hmm. And that's, uh, I, uh, I will not let anybody have this. I will not share this with anybody. Mm -hmm. and, I, and then I want more. You know, and if I get bored with this toy, I'm not going to give it to anybody else. I'll keep it for myself mm -hmm. and get another one. So um, that's a lot of what happens in affluent societies, and it happens to girls as well as boys. Um, so it's not, it is, everything I'm saying is all the consequence of social learning. Mm -hmm. And everything I'm saying, I'm saying because I'm a peace educator, and I believe that human beings are a learning species. Mm -hmm. And if, if we set our sights on something, and we really believe that this is a goal that is worth our endeavor, we will learn how to achieve it. Mm -hmm. If there isn't a way, we will invent the way. Mm -hmm. uh, and what, when you were talking about uh, not, not being conscious of certain things, it's, mm -hmm. that's what peace education is about, mm -hmm. is to make people reflective, 
to, to, to enable them to become conscious of it, to uh, think about deeply and reflectively all the things that I was talking about in the beginning of, you know, what were the problems of violence that we peace educators began to fo focus on when we were developing the field. Mm -hmm. And as we <clears throat> uh, began to work together on how we could educate about that, uh, we came to the general agreement that one of the ways was not only to analyze and see interrelationships and structures, but to be deeply reflective mm -hmm. about the consequences and the meaning of the conditions mm -hmm. that we were asking students mm -hmm. to consider and think about. So uh, women have uh, these capacities because of their experience, but also women have been closed out of power mm -hmm. structures. So w women's realm of action has been in community. Um, many women uh, long before uh, there was suffrage or any political rights mm -hmm. uh, were involved in community planning, dealing with community issues and, mm -hmm. and so forth. So uh, when, for instance, if their children are getting sick mm -hmm. and they understand it's because the water is polluted, mm -hmm. They, they were organized to try to clean up, get that water uh -huh. cleaned up. There were people of Flint couldn't fight the power structure, but, um, it, and, but Flint is also an example. It's the community who were demanding that something be done. So uh, what we call that now is on the larger scale, and now it's global because these communal mm -hmm. uh, efforts that are largely women's efforts because women are not in the formal power structures are the most significant part of global civil society. Oh, because you've become leaders in the outside, in the, the informal structures. Right. Mm -hmm. in, uh, it's, it, the UN talks about it as parallel but sometimes it has to be not only parallel, but it has to be alternative or mm -hmm. challenging mm -hmm. because the UN is a creature uh -huh. of the patriarchal nation state system. Mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's uh, another one of these Even though they, we have a lot of uh, progress through the UN, that's, that is the, the actual reality. So the global, the genius of the, the global network mm -hmm is that it recognizes this. It mm -hmm. recognizes not only all those uh, areas of uh, holistic views and uh, multiple skills that women have from traditional roles, but it also sees uh, the ingenuity of women in uh, engaging in political action and achieving uh, 
political goals. Mm -hmm. And in the process of empowering themselves, maybe not always within the within the structures, uh, the formal structures, but within the whole system in which those uh, structures uh, stand, mm -hmm. they are women have more power than they've had uh, previously uh -huh. um, as a group. There's always been women outstanding and so forth. Mm -hmm. And uh, GNWP um, is a quintessential, I think, uh, the most effective of mm -hmm. all uh, the civil society organizations mm -hmm. in terms of everything we talk about as human rights. Mm -hmm. They are doing within their uh, pro the programs that they are encouraging and inspiring, mm -hmm. they don't do it. The women do it uh -huh. uh, around 1325. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's those two, two parts. It's p the consequences of women's exclusion mm -hmm. as well as women's self-empowerment to deal with what they care about. Mm -hmm. So when you come together, when yeah, they're finally yeah. empowered and, and no longer excluded or included in a different area. Yeah. Well, if women are finally fully empowered, that's when we'll have the, the, the kind of change that mm -hmm. well, uh, I'm talking it. about in terms of uh, the social and political consequences of thinking differently. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for the well the compliments the GNWP and the work that you've done to help us and help create some of the avenues that are now open to us that wouldn't have been if this peace education hadn't become such an important field all those years back and so for our final question we know that you are a founder of many peace organizations and institutions including the International Institute on Peace Education founded in 1982 and the Global Campaign for Peace Education, founded in 1999. Both of these are central global networks through which peace educators and activists keep updated on each other's activities, undertake international collaborations in the field of peace education, and integrate into, into civil society movements and campaigns. So coming up in 2020, would you be able to tell us what the future of peace education looks like and how civil society members are working towards creating peace and educating others in it? No. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. Mm -hmm. um, or the work you've been doing currently. Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I, 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 I'm going to say two things about that. I mm -hmm. can't and I won't. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that uh, the future, uh, much of the future of peace education in bits and pieces exists in the present as the future always has. Mm -hmm. But the challenge now is uh, to engage in uh, more deeper reflection uh, about the obstacles to the kind of thinking that I've been talking about through this whole uh, conversation. Mm -hmm. uh, and we don't know uh, what strategies or what actions or what learnings uh, at this point are going to be most effective. We have ideas about uh, some things that might be useful, but we haven't really put ourselves to 
the task of devising peace education the way we have twice in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. The first time was uh, when uh, the Peace Education Commission uh, of the International Peace Research Association mm -hmm. formed the international field of peace education mm -hmm. that we all felt part of and felt uh, enough commonality to say, yes, there's an international field. Uh, but we practiced very differently mm -hmm. and there were many different uh, approaches and so forth. The second was in the mid-80s when uh, we moved toward a more holistic view. Then we didn't start out, we had a system view uh, of the world political system. We understood the mm -hmm. structures of oppression and so forth, but we didn't have so much of what uh, we came to call the comprehensive view mm -hmm. or cosmopolitan, multi-part, mm -hmm. multi together view. Um, and uh, so comprehensive peace education, and that's what I, uh, is being reissued. Uh -huh. that, that was um, the statement of where we were at that, that putting it all together holistically uh, and moving into uh, being uh, more aware of uh, cosmopolitanism as a way of looking at the world and being a part of the world. Mm -hmm. Now I think um, we need to uh, move beyond that. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, I'm 90 years old. I'm not going to be the one moving beyond that. Mm -hmm. And uh, many uh, my, my younger colleagues are 70. Uh -huh. So um, this is a task for people of your age, people in their early, late teens, early 20s, up until, you know, up to, to 40, I, you know, like the UN definition of youth, anybody mm -hmm. under 40. Um, but it's, it's uh, a task for people who are going to live the primary part of their lives and whatever we have left, <laughs> uh -huh. you know, um, and and so I th I think uh, since we believe in self determination, mm -hmm. we believe in the empowerment of people to determine their own conditions and destinies. Mm -hmm. Then I think the future of peace education is in the hands of those who take up peace education mm -hmm. now and for the next few decades. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I, all of us, I mean, I'm older than everybody, but all of the older generation uh, are, so long as we're around, uh, are willing to be consulted. But I, I also um, hope that we will have the grace to withdraw when it's appropriate to withdraw. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And allow the next generation, the yes. voices of youth. Yeah. And, and to in, intentionally mm -hmm. bring people forward into the positions of leadership, uh, into uh, the roles of being the seminal thinkers, and uh, those who uh, 
formulate whatever new concepts and whatever new strategies are, are necessary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, this is a great, it's the perfect podcast to have right after Youth Day because it's like you're saying, the youth, the next generation finding a platform for their voice need to, the future's in our hands. So whichever field we enter, peace education, collaborating with uh, climate change, fighting for ending wars, it's all in the hands of people who are living it now. And so as we step into these roles, I think it's important to keep in mind how similar they are. And like you said, it's not just the intersectionality, but they're integral, they're coming together. And they, I mean, they are already together. So we need to view them more holistically. That they function to together. I call it interfunctionality. Interfunctionality. <laughs> interfunctionality. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. yeah. And looking at things in a more holistic way seems to be... What has always been, what has always driven things successfully. When you just look at one part of it, things tend to fail. So if we can see things more holistically and bring up younger generation and not not feel like people are getting kicked out, not feel like people are being excluded, but include everyone's voices, we'll hopefully have um, the most inclusive answers possible. Well, thank you so much. This has been so interesting, educational for me, and we have great content to work with as well. And it's it's been I've read about your work, I've heard your name in the office, but it's been great to hear and read like what you sent me, um, your ideas in person and on all of these very topical and very very pressing issues. Yes. Well, I enjoyed talking to you, and I'm looking forward to hearing about you and what you do. <laughs> we unfortunately have to wrap up now, but I'd like to extend a thank you to Dr. Reardon for your tireless efforts researching and advocating for peace education and women's involvement, and of course for coming to speak with us about it. In the spirit of today's podcast, we'd like to once again wish you all a happy International Day of Peace. People around the world are doing invaluable work towards creating a more inclusive, sustainable, and peaceful world, and we at GNWP are proud to help support them.